You're listening to the official podcast of Asbury University, produced by students with God-honoring conversations that inform, edify, and encourage. This is Asbury. We explore culture and current topics through a Christian worldview, promoting a well-balanced life, and we empower our community to belong, become, and be set apart. I'm your host, Abby Lobb. Welcome to This is Asbury. Hi, everyone. My name is Kevin Brown. I have the privilege today of speaking with Reverend Dr. Steve Deneff. Steve, decades ago, I had the privilege of hearing you and Marion at College Wesleyan Church. My father-in-law said, you really, really need to pay attention to this guy. So for years upon years upon years, even when you had the DVD, I had a few. When that was a thing, I'd watch those and have just long, long been someone that is engaged your thinking and preaching and have deeply, deeply appreciated it and and very much seen its impact within the Christian world, the Wesleyan world. So this is an honor just to have a moment to interact with you. Oh, it's my honor. It's my honor to be here. God's doing great things in the Asbury campus. And so, as I said, I feel like I'm just stepping into the current. There's a question that I love to ask, and I think this is particularly relevant for pastors, And so the author and the editor, Margaret Feinberg, has made the point that every pastor really only has three or four sermons. That's her contention. And they just keep rotating or recycling those three or four themes, finding new ways to talk about them. Now, you might disagree with the premise of the question, but do you have a couple themes that you just find yourself returning to again and again? I've never heard that premise before. I Man, I wish it were true. <laughs> Writing sermons would be so much easier if we were just kind of replaying. I can think of a couple of themes, I think, if I go back over the maybe the last 10, 20 years that have really rattled me just off the top. One of them is that the kingdom of God is not a place. It is, but not entirely a place. It is the rule of God. It's the way of God lived out by the people of God in whatever place they're already in. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we're striving for some utopian ideal. We don't have to win elections in order for the kingdom of God to come about. Amen. We can practice that in boardrooms, in locker rooms, in classrooms, in cafes, and the kingdom of God rises as the people of God live up to their calling. Walk worthy in the calling that you have received in Ephesians 4.1. Another one of the themes I think that has just kind of arrested me is that the realm of the eternal is actually in the space right next to your head. It is a parallel world that runs right next to this one in real time. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit or the pure in heart or those that make peace, He's not making this up. It's like he's looking into the world that is invisible to his listeners. But to him, it is clear as day. He can see the, what Hebrews called the cloud of witnesses. And he's just bearing witness to the way that these people live. So that theme continues to arrest me. As far as discipleship is concerned, one of the best phrases I've heard in a long time is, that there's a lot of people who believe in Jesus, but they don't believe Jesus. 
and they don't believe what Jesus believes. And so the call for a deep and a radical conversion, and by the way, maybe a few years ago, the big discovery for me was that conversion in any religion rarely means that we're moving from one set of beliefs into another. That's almost never the case, even with Christianity. So when we're calling people to convert, we're almost never asking them to change belief systems. We're generally calling them into deeper ramifications of the same beliefs they already have. Yes. Yes. So that goes back to the statement, a lot of people believe in Jesus, but they don't actually believe Jesus. They don't believe what Jesus believes. And so the call to conversion is a call to take people into the full implications of that belief system until they do by nature things that God requires. Russell Moore had a comment recently that people aren't leaving the church because they don't believe what the church says. They don't believe the church believes what the church says. Yes, that's it. Yes. Yes. I, I think that's exactly right. And yet at the same time, they will show up to watch someone burn who does believe that, <laughs> right? Even if they don't believe it, they'll say, wow, I don't believe it, but that guy sure does. Yes. And they will come for that. And I think there's an opportunity for preachers if we can only believe our own sermons. The theme you mentioned about having the spiritual eyes to see around us is fascinating. Just this morning, right before I came to chapel, one of our employees Jeremy Simmons is also a wonderful painter, and he had an oil painting of Hughes Auditorium representing the outpouring on fire. And I I didn't even know my wife had purchased this from him, so he brought it up to me. But I was so taken by it, and I told him it's that Elizabeth Barrett Browning line, that every common bush of fire with God. Yes. And that if we had the spiritual eyes to see it, we'd see this world animated yes. with spiritual matter, yes. uh, but yes. uh, to your point earlier, the listeners don't often. Yeah, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, yes. but principalities and powers. Sometimes it's helpful for somebody just to point that out. I mean, I was in the middle of some kind of a fix not long ago, and someone just said, just so you know, this might not be all human. <laughs> there might be a real and formidable opponent here that is, again very present in the world next to your head. He is a power to be dealt with um, that is playing on forces in this world as though they were his own. All it took was somebody to say that because the moment they did, then I felt the fight come out of me, right? At that point, I'm like, oh, shoot. All right, then it's on. You had done a sermon series years ago on Proverbs that maybe 2017 outstanding. And there were so many quotable things there. But in one of the messages, you remarked that, and this is interesting to me because I'm interested in what are the questions people are asking today? So in this, you said, the world is not asking what Christians believe. They're not asking the church's thoughts on right and wrong. You said they're asking a different question. They want to know, does it work? Could you talk about this some? Why is demonstrating our faith, not just proclaiming it, so important in this present moment? Because I think the culture 
is full of words and everybody's talking and everybody has their spin on something. And I think what matters today is what I've referred to in our own church as living gospel rather than just preaching gospel. Another one of the big claims that has sort of taken hold of my heart lately is that the gospel is not simply the good news that Jesus died, rose again, and so our sins can be forgiven. That's a rather small gospel. Gospel is a really aggressive and an ambitious agenda. Let me take a side trail for a second. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when Jesus came preaching the gospel, none of what Christians today say the gospel is had happened yet. So what gospel did he preach? When you back into the Old Testament, it's present in Samuel, it's present in Isaiah, it's present, I think, in Jeremiah as well. The same word is used. It's a campaign that God is bringing into the world. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the pinnacle of that. Yeah. But it is not by any stretch the whole of it. The whole of it involves the body, the culture, the systems, the structures, the very things that people are calling for today to change. It's why the gospel is so powerful of a message and why the culture is so ripe. If the church can get out of the tropes that we love to quote from social media. So why it's important for people to actually live this out is because when people see what the gospel looks like in a community of believers that wear it well, then they say to themselves, that is an attractive social alternative. Even if we didn't believe in God, we want that. And so I think it uses the God-given hunger, the primal desire that people have for the good life. Nobody wants their life to stink. It just does because of decisions that they make. And so when people live out of different decisions and their lives flourish, it becomes an attractive alternate. Does that make sense? It does make sense. David Brooks put it really interesting recently that he was saying, you Christians, you actually have several thousand years worth of training on how to live well. And I thought that was just a really interesting way of putting it, not just ideas, but practices for for flourishing, for human flourishing. Uh, I thought you were going to use a different David Brooks quote. He said that, this is going to be rough, but close. He said that society changes when a few people in it learn a better way to live, and then the rest of society find them. And see, this is a totally different approach to evangelism today, which as I came up, evangelism was more about sales. It was about trying to convince someone who wasn't convinced that these set of theological propositions were true. And if you accept these ideas, then you can be a child of God. But in truth, evangelism today in a skeptical culture that is full of different belief systems, people are just looking for what works, what's practical. They'll believe anybody so long as it leads to a better life. They don't necessarily believe the best argument. They believe the person whose life is working. So all the more reason for people to come together. And this is the last idea was this can't be done as an individual. There is power in a community collectively doing this in a small town or city. Well said. We've sought to faithfully narrate what happened here in February. You and I were talking about that earlier, what we've called the outpouring. And it's been said that students 
experienced the fulfillment of prayers by faithful men and women in years and decades past. And that was a really profound thought to me that I might, that our students might, we might be living the prayers of those who have gone before us. So with this in mind, I just simply wanted to ask you, what are you praying about and what are your prayers for future generations to live into? Oh, wow. Well, that's a great question. I tried to touch it this morning at the Mm -hmm. end of the chapel message. My preaching has changed in the last maybe two years. I used to preach a lot of sermons that called for a commitment of an individual to come and reconcile with God or to go in the deeper life. But as I get older and as I look at the culture and I think about the power of a collective witness, not just scattered individuals, but individuals coming together in the workplace, 15 minutes maybe praying, what I'm preaching for now is for people to join a movement that I think God is putting together. I think he's gathering the raw materials for the next church. And part of that just might be age. I get that. But part of it is I've spent a lot of time in the prophets, and that is all they talk about. In fact, the word remnant is almost vacant in the Old Testament until you get to the prophets. It happens in exile. That's when the word first occurs, and then the prophets are full of it. So I think the church right now is living in exile on the margins, and I think that's a good thing. I think its best days in the past have come from exile. But in that time, one of the crucial strategic decisions they have to make is to stop trying to take the country back in God's name and start building the remnant that God will use in his own good time for the church of the future. Amen. And you mentioned collective witness, and to tie in one of your earlier comments about living gospel, there was this great exchange in our Sunday school maybe a year ago. We have an agronomist in our Sunday school class, and he was teaching, and the person presenting him said, hey, this is Chad. He's an agronomist. That means he studies dirt. And Chad (laughs) calmly walked to the front, and he (laughs) raised his hand and said, it's soil. (laughs) So I I thought that was really fascinating, and I don't know that world, so I went, what is the difference between dirt and soil? And one of the definitions that really caught my attention said, dirt is displaced soil, because soil is alive, and it's an ecosystem, and it is fostering life, and when you displace it, that's when it becomes dirt, because it's dead. Oh, that's great. So when you said Christians individually atomized and scattered. I just think if dirt is displaced soil, what is displaced collective witness? Is it its own kind of dirt, perhaps? Yeah, it's a remnant. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I just wanted to end with this. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I joked with a group recently that if a Christian school or church or ministry has made the news, something probably went wrong. And so (laughs) there's been a lot of that recently. But I just wanted to ask you, what are you optimistic about when you think of the church, when you think of the future of Christianity? Are there some things that encourage you? Oh, my. There's lots. Again, back to the prophets, the words of God of what will happen to the cities and how the people of God will restore a spirit of gladness to those that are mourning, a spirit of joy. They will open the eyes of the blind. 
same chapter, Isaiah 61. They will rebuild the cities and rebuild the ruins. If you look over what has happened in our major metropolitan areas in the last three or four years, just this vision of the people of God coming together someday and rebuilding those things in God's name. What gives me such joy is that God is not hoping that this happens. He's telling you, plain-faced, it will happen. And you can't stop it. And so I'm like, man, I mean, it may not happen in my lifetime. I get that, but it will happen. I feel optimistic about that. So anything that we're doing today that feeds that movement, that makes that outcome more likely, however tired or fragile we feel at times, we are joining forces with something that cannot fail because it came from the mouth of God and there's nobody bigger or stronger. Yes, let it be so. What an encouraging thought. Well, this has been a blessing to me. I know it will be a blessing to the listeners. Thank you for being on our campus today and thank you for joining me. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of This is Asbury. To learn more about Asbury University, visit asbury.edu. 